This week's guest is John Hahn from Hahn Law. Very interesting background. Uh, we get into the history of acupuncture and the regulation about acupuncture. We get into uh, prosecuting mob crime, which is what he used to do. Very interesting conversation about superstitions. I think this is the best answer we've ever gotten to what are your superstitions. So this is a really great episode. I hope you enjoy. John, thanks for joining us and welcome to Interrogatories. Thank you, Josh. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to say you're our first former federal prosecutor, but you're our second. So second's not bad. <laughs> That's great. So uh, for those that don't know you, I mean, you know, you've got an interesting background. How do you go from, well, are you from this area originally? Are you from Southeast PA originally? No, um, I was born in um, Seoul, South Korea. Um, I immigrated to the United States when I was six years old with my mom and dad and my younger sister. And we settled outside of Boston, um, right near the Massachusetts and Rhode Island border in a little town called South Attleboro. Um, I spent until about middle school in, in that area. And then my parents ultimately moved to uh, Rhode Island where I went to uh, finished up middle school and, and finished up high school. So you're a Southie at heart, a South Shore guy. Right, right, right. Now, this view, uh, is it like my one of my law school friends? He gets a couple of beers in him. He's dropping his ass and, you know, you, hitting his Duncan and all that. Or have you put that behind you? I think when I go back to the area and reconnect with my friends and, um, you know, family members that are still in New England, uh, the, the accent still comes out. Um, and I think there, I, I've been told that when I say certain words, uh, there's a distinct uh, Rhode Island uh, twist to it so and are you still tied to your duncan or, or do you have a different coffee of choice <laughs> very, very tied to duncan yes um glad to see that there's a lot of duncan donuts in the uh southeastern pa yeah um, now are you uh, how deep into the into your coffee are you because you know previous guest i mentioned she had like two venti huge starbucks on her desk from that day and that prompted her after listening to the show prompted her to be like wait i need to get my coffee intake under control here um so i'm curious you know, you know what your coffee intake's at you know i usually have a couple cup uh cups of coffee in the morning um lately i've been uh, incorporating a, a mid-afternoon coffee as well uh but i have to say that um my favorite coffee right now is is has to be wawa really yeah, despite my, you know, connection to Duncan, um, since moving to the Philadelphia area, um, I really uh, appreciate Wawa. Now, what do you get? Are you just getting regular coffee? Are you getting a drink or what do you get there? This is what people need to know. This is the stuff that people tune in for. You know, what is your drink of choice? I love the fact that there are um, the various different uh, milk that's available. Mm hmm. I love the hazelnut coffee um, that Wawa has. Um, it's it, I think it is my go-to right now. Nice. All right. Because, you know, you're a solo practitioner, so that means you need a lot of coffee. That's right. That's so, right. I mean, w walk us through it. How does a guy from uh, South Korea by way of, you know, the South Shore end up in the Philadelphia suburbs as a solo practitioner? So, um, to give me the timeline, you know, I – Went to uh, the University of Michigan, uh, graduated from there uh, for college, and to went to law school immediately afterwards uh, to American University in Washington, D.C. And then 
in my third year, I applied to the uh, the Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps, um, and then got accepted into that program, um, and started my career out of law school as a, uh, a naval officer. Um, now, in the, the Navy, General. is it is it like the Marines? You have to go through the full boot camp and the whole kit and caboodle, or is it a uh, you know a toned down version? How's that go? It is a toned down version. There was a requirement. Uh, you know, as part of the the, the training um, that was required uh, before I even got to my first duty station and uh, started working as a as an attorney, um, there was a requirement to undergo six weeks of military training. You know, somewhat like boot camp for six weeks in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, you know, where you were taught about Navy tradition and Navy customs and how to wear the uniform. Uh, there was a significant, you know, physical fitness component to that, getting up early in the morning um, and uh, marching to the, the dining facility. Um, and then throughout the day, you would have uh, classes on, on military history and um, military etiquette. Um, so it was kind of a boot camp atmosphere for mm-hmm. lawyers and, and doctors in the Navy uh, in Newport, Rhode Island for six weeks. Um, after that point, um, we I went home to wait for the uh, the results of the bar exam, and then once um, I passed the bar, um, went back to Newport for twelve weeks of instruction at the Naval Justice School, where you learned um, essentially military law. That was much more of an academic environment, um, and then once you completed that. Um, I went to my first duty station in San Francisco. And while I was in San Francisco for three years, um, I spent nearly my entire time there as a defense counsel, um, defending sailors and Marines charged with criminal offenses before uh, courts martial. So do they not Uh, rotate you through? I know some branches, you kind of go back and forth every year or six or however it works. There's like a rotation. Sometimes you're on the defense, sometimes you're on the prosecution, but doesn't sound like that was your experience. I actually did have that experience, not in San Francisco. Um, I spent uh, most of my time there uh, as a defense counsel um, and primarily defending people um, at court marshals and also administrative discharge boards. Um, And then at the very end of my tour in San Francisco, I did transition into another job where um, I was essentially working as an advisor to area commands, whether they were uh, ships, afloat commands, or land-based commands, uh, advising them on how to conduct court-martials, how to make certain charging decisions, and essentially acting as a um, a general counsel or advisor um, on commands that, uh, on military justice issues. Um, From there, I uh, transferred to uh, Naples, Italy, which was was a uh, very, very uh, rewarding experience living overseas. Um, had never been to Italy before uh, being stationed there. Um, had a wonderful experience uh, enjoying Italian culture and learning the language uh, as well. Um, and uh, so when I was in Naples... So do you speak I spent, Italian? I do speak Italian. And do you speak Korean? And I speak Korean. How many, so do you speak any other languages before I have to just go through them all? Well, I I spent about six years um, in middle school and high school uh, learning uh, French. 
um, which uh, in many ways helped me learn Italian because as a, as a romance language, uh, and the grammar and the sentence structure was pretty much the same. But do you actually speak? It was a little different. Do you speak French? Because I spent eight years in uh, middle school and high school learning Spanish, quote unquote, and I uh, couldn't get anywhere with it today. But I, you know, I spent a lot of time learning French. Um, got to a point where um, I could understand French, you know, fluently. Uh, the difficulty was that because I didn't use French as frequently as one would um, in in mastering the language, um, you know, the, it was difficult to respond in French quickly and and fluently. Uh, but you know, I, I went to. I remember going to Paris for my, uh, when I was stationed in um, in Italy, and all those years of learning French kind of came back to me. I could sit at a cafe and listen to people speaking in French and know exactly what they were talking about. Um, my only difficulty was being able to engage in a, a, a lengthy conversation where I had to respond in French. That was a, a little challenging. Um, but I got to a point with Italian where I, you know, I was able to, obviously not a, a native speaker, but fluent enough to be able to, you know, pick up the phone and order train tickets or, or go to a restaurant and converse and uh, do all the, you know, the, the day-to-day things that you would do if you were living in Italy. Um, right. So you know the names uh, of all the wines you could. Right, right. No, it, it got to the point where, you know, um, and I think the fact that as, as an immigrant, you know, coming to the country um, at age six and learning English, um, you know, my parents were pretty strict about, you know, embracing our Korean culture and maintaining our culture in the, in the, uh, in the home. Um, so they, you know, we, I spoke Korean um, at home. And then I went to school and learned English. Uh, being bilingual um, sort of conditioned my brain to um, learn other languages, you know, including French and Italian. And um, do you think that bilingual aspect, I mean, it doesn't sound like something that would necessarily impact you in law school or as you were becoming a lawyer, but do you think it did? Um, I don't, my motivation to go to law school or be interested in law was many ways sort of tied to my um, parents' um, assimilation into the United States. Um, my dad was a, uh, primarily came to the United States um, wanting to set up a, uh, his own practice of acupuncture. Um, you know, he thought in many ways that he could apply his skills as an acupuncturist to help people suffering from various physical ailments. Uh, and he believed that acupuncture could provide tremendous healing benefits um, as a low cost or alternative form of medicine that didn't rely on chemicals and invasive surgeries. Right. So he wanted to bring, you know, Eastern medicine to mm -hmm. the United States. Uh, and when he immigrated to the United States in 1974, um, there were really no laws. Um, that pertain to the practice of acupuncture, except mm -hmm. um, in certain states, I think the state that was probably the most progressive and forward-leaning when, when it comes to acupuncture was California. Right. Uh, but in other parts of the country, especially in New England, uh, there were some laws, but the laws were um, uh, primarily that, you know, if you were an acupuncturist, you could practice under the supervision of a medical doctor. and 
when my father uh, began the process of researching how he would be able to uh, someday engage in the independent practice of acupuncture, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that he really um, was stood in the way was, you know, the requirement that you'd be supervised by a medical doctor who really didn't understand or know right. acupuncture. So nothing to do with it. He was never able to understand why that requirement was was even imposed. So um, I saw my dad for about five years um, cultivating relationships with lawyers and legislators um, and going to the Rhode Island General Assembly and um, essentially um, trying to convince the lawmakers to pass a law that would authorize the independent practice of acupuncture and set up a board. Uh, just like, um, you know, other you know, Western medical fields. Um, so I saw him go through that and, and, you know, I saw the fact that there was a tremendous uh, level of, of skepticism and distrust of um, acupuncture at the time, um, very much unlike what it is today. But back in the 70s, you know, people perceived this form of medicine as being somewhat strange and foreign. Right. Any Eastern uh, medicine was kind of like, you know, witch doctory. Nobody had anything, wanted anything to do with it. Right. It was like a voodoo medicine type of situation. Right. Unless you're um, in California. Unless you're in California. <laughs> yeah. So and, wait, but uh, did he win? Did it happen? He did. You know, and he, you know, over the years he cultivated, uh, you know, the assistance of uh, lawyers and legislators sympathetic to his cause. And he realized his dream in 1978 when the Rhode Island General Assembly finally passed the first law um, authorizing the independent practice of acupuncture in New England. Nice. Um, 1980, he became the first licensed acupuncturist in the history of the state of Rhode Island. A uh, medical board was set up. And, you know, from there, you know, his career uh, in acupuncture took off um, and became a very, very successful, um, you know, acupuncturist. Uh, so, you know, the experience of watching my dad, you know, his pioneering efforts uh, and his tremendous success uh, during a long and distinguished career, you know, helping and healing thousands of patients deeply affected me in, in two very important ways. Uh, first, it inspired my interest in pursuing a career in law. Um, seeing my dad work with lawyers and legislators to pass this historic law on acupuncture you know, I realized that the law can be a very powerful vehicle to improve the quality of life for Americans. And that was a very big motivating uh, thing. You know, I saw the law in action. I saw where it could do to improve uh, the quality of life for so many people in um, in Rhode Island and, and beyond. Um, and I also saw that, you know, my dad was engaged in helping other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it motivated me to, you know, to apply my skills and talents towards the service of others, um, which sort of underscores the fact that I spent most of my career in the law in public service. Um, and, um, you know, my dad was a very big influence on that uh, decision. And do you do a lot of Eastern medicine now? I mean, are you just acupuncture and chiropractic or, you know, what's your, where, I, where are you, you on know, that? You know, I played high school football and, you know, I had uh, a lot of uh, various (laughs) injuries um, and I I don't think I would have survived 
you know, all those years of uh, playing sports without acupuncture. So, um, you know, I, as growing up, um, whenever I, you know, had a sprain or, or some ligament damage, you know, I would always, uh, you know, the first thing I would think of is to go to my, go see my dad and, and get, you know, acupuncture treatments. So your dad would just kind of like stab you every week, but they never had to call it child welfare. No, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the best legal stabbing uh, option, essentially. Yeah, so no. you we're walking through it. You're in the Navy. Um, you were stationed overseas and then eventually you end up at Department of Justice. How does that happen? So um, I left active duty in 1999 uh, as a member of the uh, Pennsylvania Bar. Um, I focused my attention in looking for positions uh, in Pennsylvania. Why and, were you a member? Sorry to interrupt you. Why were you a member of the Pennsylvania Bar? Well, it's, that's an interesting story. Um, when I got accepted uh, to the Navy JAG Corps uh, and accepted my commission, um, I didn't really know at the time where I'd be practicing law. I mean, I'm from Rhode Island, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it was. I wasn't sure whether or not I'd, I'd go back to Rhode Island to practice law. So I had a conversation with a law professor of mine and I said, you know, here's my predicament. I am going into the Navy. I'm going to be traveling all over the world and seeing the world. Um, I don't know exactly where I'm going to be, uh, what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Where you're going to land. Um, so do you have any recommendations on, you know, which state bar should I take? Um, and he said, I think you should take Pennsylvania. And I asked him why. And he said, look, if you get a high enough score on the multi-state exam, the multiple choice portion of the exam. Yeah. This was this was in the early 90s. Um, Pennsylvania doesn't grade the essays. So, you know, it's sort of a less stress um, compared to some other bars. So I looked into that and decided, OK, I'll take Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, focus my attention on doing well on the, uh, you know, the core subjects of the multi-state um, and luckily passed the bar. Um, so when I was getting out of the Navy, naturally, I looked for positions in, in Pennsylvania because, you know, I was a member of the bar here. Um, and 1999, I um, got a job at the DA's office in Philadelphia mm -hmm. uh, working for Lynn Abraham. Um, I was there in the DA's office from... Uh, 2000 to 2006, where I primarily focused on prosecuting cases involving uh, public corruption, uh, police misconduct, uh, fraud, um, and violent crime. You know, spent a lot of time um, prosecuting violent crime cases as well. Hmm. In Philly. In Philadelphia. And then um, in 2006, uh, I left the DA's office. And um, I started my career in the Justice Department in the organized crime and racketeering section um, and was there for about 15 years before I retired um, in October of uh, 2021, which was last year. Um, and um, I decided to open my own practice in Plymouth Meeting, uh, focusing my work um, in criminal defense state, federal, and military criminal defense um, with, with a focus on uh, doing work in Montgomery County and Bucks County um, as far as uh, state criminal defense. Now, 
what made you jump ship? I mean, you're at DOJ. Why not just ride it out and, re- and retire there, as many people do? Well, you know, I, I spent, um, you know, 15 years there. Um, and uh, people often ask me, you know, what was the best part about being an organized crime prosecutor for the Department of Justice? And what was the, you know, the worst part about being in that position? The best part about it was the uh, ability and the opportunity to work on uh, very complex and significant cases. Mm-hmm. Cases that had, you know, national significance. Um, I, I um, as an organized crime prosecutor, I you know, prosecuted cases against the Italian mafia here in Philadelphia, um, MS-13 uh, gangs, a um, variety of other, you know, national uh, criminal gangs, as well as uh, corporations and other uh, organizations that were engaged in racketeering activity. Um, and, you know, it's a very, very complex statute. Um, it incorporates a lot of the different type of predicate, you know, predicate crimes. So you get to, you know, the opportunity to work on not just on, you know, one particular, uh, you know, federal code, um, but also, you know, the opportunity to work on a variety of different crimes that are, that are considered uh, predicate racketeering activity. Um, so, you know, the downside to that, I guess the worst part about being an uh, organized crime prosecutor for the for Department of Justice is that you have to travel all over the country to do these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and, not like fancy law firm travel. That's government travel. Right. There's government travel. Um, you know, you're going to different districts, federal districts. You are establishing relationships with the United States Attorney's Office and various law enforcement agencies within that district. Um, and then you're, you're cultivating, you know, uh, relationships with the courts, uh, learning the different court systems. You know, we have a lot of different federal, uh, judicial districts and each district has peculiar rules and regulations, uh, that you have to sort of master if you're yeah. coming, coming from Washington and going out to the field and, uh, working these cases. So, um, it's a long-winded way of saying that uh, it got to the point where, you know, I have uh, my wife and I have three little kids. Um, and as they're getting older, um, I felt that, you know, to spend more time with them uh, and not be on the road, you know, mm-hmm. doing important cases. But, you know, you're still away from home, um, living out of a suitcase. Um, I felt that, you know, I wanted to continue practicing law closer to home and, uh, you know, giving me more opportunities to spend time with my family. Now, I thought you were going to say the worst part about being a uh, organized crime prosecutor was all the horse heads that showed up in your bed. But that <laughs> did that never happen? Because that, that to me would have been the top of the list is the horse heads. Um, you know, the Justice Department really takes seriously threats against uh, judges and, and prosecutors. And, um, you know, based on the nature of the cases that I worked, there were uh, instances where threats were made. Um, and um, um, I remember one time they asked me whether or not I wanted to have a, a 24 hour, you know, detail of a U.S. Marshals and agents giving me, uh, you know, around the clock protection. Um, and it just was something that uh, I appreciated, but, you know, couldn't really given my family situation where I lived, uh, it would have been, you know, too cumbersome. 
Um, but, you know, the Justice Department did, um, you know, put in a uh, alarm system in my house, mm-hmm. um, a house that I lived previously, um, you know, for, for, you know, safety and protection. Yeah. Okay. So no, no horse heads, um, no horse heads. Um, now when you're, when you're working, you're going to these districts, uh, you know, all over the country, are you kind of coming in as like, Oh, you know, we're from Washington. Duh, 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 this is our case now out of the way you'll, you know, yokel locals. And, and was the response, Hey, you know, pushback or was it, Oh, thank goodness. Somebody's here to take care of this Rico case and we don't need to worry about it. Or was it, it depends, which would be the classic lawyer answer. Well, it, there were, there were instances where, you know, you had certain, I had experiences where in some districts they had never done a RICO case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted somebody to join the team uh, who had, you know, significant RICO experience uh, to help them with the prosecution of the case. I mean, and for those, those in, in, listening, sorry, I'll just interject to those listening that aren't lawyers and aren't familiar. RICO is obviously the federal racketeering statute that we're talking about that you were prosecuting. Right. Okay. So the RICO stands for racketeering influenced um, corrupt organization. Uh, it was a law passed by Congress in 1970, and the driving purpose of that law was to uh, degrade and dismantle the, the Italian mafia syndicate in the United States, commonly known as La Cosa Nostra. Um, and, you know, we had La Cosa Nostra families in Philadelphia. We had a family, in New, you know, five families in New York. You know, the primary families that kind of drove the national syndicate were the New York families. But there were other cities around the country that... Um, uh, had these, uh, you know, these families operating as part of the larger uh, enterprise. Um, most franchises, cities, you might say, like a, like right. a franchise. Yeah, most of these cities were large, the metropolitan areas, um, New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas, um, you know, even down to Florida. Um, but, um, and you know, the United States Attorney's Office says all in those cities had um, back in the 70s, 80s and 90s um, strike forces uh, it was part of the strike force program where you had attorneys that were specifically assigned to prosecute the um, La Cosa Nostra uh, mafia cases. Um, and I had a, had the opportunity to to prosecute one of those cases here in Philadelphia. Um, between 2011 and 2014. Um, So, you know, the experience was that in those districts where they've never had, you know, uh, experience using the RICO statute, uh, it was a very collegial um, situation where they welcomed the, you know, someone like me from Washington to come out and help them put the cases together. Mm -hmm. There were other times where uh, there was a resistance, you know, in certain instances, uh, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, from Washington's involvement in the case, um, but you know, over time, I think uh, you know those those uh, you know once you start establishing those you know working relationships, you know people understand that you know we're we're, we're working together for a common purpose, uh, trying to achieve the same objective. Um, but you know, I think this is a common thing amongst lawyers is sometimes that you know you are. You're prone to say no when um, you know you're confronted with a situation that you've never encountered. So if you've never used the RICO statute, you know you might be not you know you might be initially re- you know resistant to it uh, because it's the unknown. Uh, but once you start to uh, understand how the statute can can help you put a case together, 
um, you know, you have a change of heart and uh, we're able to, to work together to, uh, to achieve those object- objectives. How do you see that in, a, in another context with lawyers, like just saying no too quickly? Well, you know, I, w- I had the experience of, uh, I spent most of my time in, in my career in the courtroom. Um, I defended cases, I prosecuted cases. I was a military judge in the Navy for four years. So I presided over cases. So I've done everything in the courtroom that one can do uh, in various roles. Um, but I've also, uh, when I was in the Navy, worked as a general counsel. Uh, where you're advising an organization uh, on a, a variety of legal issues in different uh, uh, areas. Um, you go to work and, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you don't know how that day is going to be scheduled because people will come up to you and ask you quite legal questions, uh, whether it's environmental law, criminal law, mm-hmm. labor employment law or federal regulatory law, a uh, variety of issues. And I think that, you know, from my experience, the best lawyers are the ones that um, don't just say no, because no is oftentimes in, you know, amongst lawyers, the easiest route. If you don't right. do anything, you don't create any issues, right? But that's not really what organizations are looking for in their general counsels. Uh, they want the lawyer to be able to come up with uh, a mechanism or a way to get to yes um, in a way that is, you know, uh, compliant with the law. Right. And, um, you know, that's where you have to be, uh, you know, creative. You creative. You have to sometimes think out of the box. You have to sort of be focused on what the client's goals are and objectives. Um, you got to do the research and all the legwork and you got to figure out a way to get them to. Yes, there are instances where, you know, yes, is just impossible. But you can't you can't do that until you do your due diligence and um, and do the research and, and you know, think of various ways. Uh, sometimes these ways, these creative ways to get to yes is um, path less travel or path never travel. Right. Um, and you got to have the courage to say, OK, well, you know, there's always risks in what you can do as an organization. But, you know, uh, you sort of give the client the opportunity to understand, you know, the balancing of the risks and rewards um, and, you know, advise them on what how they can get to yes in a way that, you know, doesn't create tremendous legal risk. More or more work for lawyers down the road. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or maybe right. you do want to help some lawyers out, you know, somebody can get some business out of it. Right. Um, so all this time you spend in the federal government, you're traveling all over God's creation, uh, living out of a suitcase. What are your top packing tips for traveling for work? You know, I'm sure you had it down to a well-oiled machine at the end of your tenure. So, you know, what tips do you have for the avid business traveler? You know, if you're going to be going to a particular city to work on a project for an extended period of time, one of the things that I uh, did to sort of alleviate um, the burden of travel is that, you know, for lawyers, we wear suits in court. Mm -hmm. I would take, you know, pack up a suitcase, a large suitcase with suits. And uh, I would... Um, essentially um, take those suits and put it in my office at where I'm working. You know, um, in most instances, I was given an office at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the city in which uh, 
you know, I'd be assigned a case. Um, to give you an idea, I had a case in Las Vegas where, you know, I went out there pretty frequently. Um, so I would just get my what I needed um, for court. I'd put it in my office. And then when I travel back and forth for multiple trips, um, I would just take on a carry-on. I mean, I think the best tool is just pack light and pack carry-on. Don't rely on uh, checking your luggage because it just adds time to uh, check the luggage and then wait for the luggage. Sometimes the luggage gets lost and then you're dealing with the frustration of that situation. Um, so I got to the point where I had a backpack and that's all I used to travel back and forth between Philadelphia and whatever city uh, that I was working at the time. Wait a minute. Um, I, already, I had all my stuff sort of prepositioned. So you had just suits all over the country in strategic uh, U.S. attorney's offices that are just full of Han suits all over the place? I, you know, I, at one point, um, you know, I had the distinction of having five or six different DOJ email addresses because each U.S. attorney's office would give me an email address, an email oh. account. Um, and then I would have suits um, sort of littered all over the, of the U.S., um, you know, in the offices that I work. So, um, you know, I think the, the significant amount of travel that's required to be a uh, prosecutor in the organized crime section in Washington to going out to the field, um, you know, was over time, it was, it was fun in the beginning, but it got less fun. <laughs> yeah. You had to deal with, you know, I mean, countless times where, you know, I I would miss a flight. I'd be stranded in a, in a, a layover city, and then, you know, worried about whether or not I'd be able to, you know, make it to court on time and things like that. Um, you know, so all the different, you know, flights canceled because of weather, flights canceled because of mechanical problems. I've dealt with all of those things, you know, for, you know, much of the 15 years that I spent uh, doing that work. And I'm glad to put it behind you, I'm assuming. Yes, I, I am. You know, it's, it's been a liberating experience opening my own practice, um, being my own boss, you know, for the very first time in my career, uh, being very close to home so that I can be here for the family, uh, enjoy all the, uh, you know, the time together as I see my kids grow up um, and being able to work, you know, in a courthouse that is a short drive away from where I live. Is, it's been a very uh, good and, and rewarding experience. Well, great. I'm glad, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And hopefully uh, the listeners are enjoying hearing about it. Cause I think it's an interesting path that you've uh, traveled to get to where you are today. Now, along that path, you've done a lot of writing, you've done a lot of reading. So now we've got to the critical question of the interview, which is this, uh, what's your take on the Oxford comma? Do you use it? Does the department of justice have a formal policy on it? Do different us attorney's offices differ on this? Tell us everything. Well, you know, writing is very important at the Justice Department. Um, you know, you even during the interview process and the application process, uh, your writing samples are very uh, closely scrutinized. And that's uh, one of the tools of the trade that uh, we all as lawyers uh, have to have to, to become successful. Um, I will tell you that I do use the Oxford Circle. I'm in favor of the use. I There's other people that... Um, that I work with who uh, do not use it and do not favor it. Uh, some people who actually abhor the Oxford comma. Um, but I personally, um, you know, use it regularly. And is there a DOJ style guide? And if so, what is it's, what is the position there? If you know, 
I don't think there's a style guide. Um, I think it varies between, you know, whoever's, you know, writing these documents. Um, but, you know, in sort of an informal poll, I, I think that the people that I've encountered, um, my colleagues, um, um, generally use the Oxford comma with right. a smaller number of colleagues that did, don't use it. So what is something, you know, in your experience that you have found that you get wrong every time you do it or many times that you do it? Something that I get wrong. Mm -hmm. Something that you mess up regularly, you get wrong when you do it. For me, it's spelling the word successful or, uh, you know, remembering where I parked when I'm at the airport, although I figured out a system for that, these kinds of things, or is it, you know, remembering how to, what the uh, acronym for RICO is, whatever, something you, you regularly mess up. I think the challenge um, would be, you know, those words where you sort of have to know the rules, of whether the I goes before E, E goes before I. I think that's where, you know, there's a regular slip up there and I have to kind of check myself and, and double check. Um, you know, while we're on the subject of writing, um, you know, that's that's an area that, you know, I routinely have to. Um, it's not as, as fluid at times. It's mm -hmm. uh, you have to sort of double check. I second guess myself. That's probably, you know, more yeah. often than not, second guess myself with respect to that. Well, luckily, the computer. Especially computer's when I get older out. too, and I'm getting older. I, you know, I, you know. Yeah, my memory is uh, is affected as well. I've been second guessing myself a lot lately. I moved, and the zip code of my house and the zip code of my office are one digit off. So I'm constantly thinking, wait, is this the office zip code or is this the home zip code? Um, so I, I hear you there. What is something that people enjoy that you just don't see the point of? There are a lot of people that I encounter who appear to enjoy social media. And um, I think social media has a purpose. Uh, but, you know, the amount of time that I see people engaged on social media, I just don't see the purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to communicate with friends and family and to let people know what's what you're, what's going on, which is a, a great tool for you know, building relationships and uh, keeping in touch with people. But, you know, when you're um, like, I saw one posting where it was a picture of um, a plate of food and I just didn't see the purpose mm -hmm. of why you'd want to post a picture of, of what your last meal was. Um, you Unless know, it was your last meal and then people are going to want to remember, you know? Right. But, you know, I think some of the, some of the postings, uh, some of the you know, time spent, on, on posting things on social media is um, something that I would, I wonder why people would do that. Do you have any superstitions? And this, uh, this includes things like, I always park in this parking spot the night before a trial, or I always wear these socks, or I always eat a Big Mac or whatever, superstitions or things that you do that you're like, own superstitions. You know, um, in the Korean culture, we have a lot of superstitions. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's sort of, you know, growing up in a family and, um, you know, learning about the different superstitions. Like, for instance, um, a common superstition is the, the number four is uh, it's sort of akin to in Western culture, 13. Hmm. It's an unlucky number. 
And the reason why it's an unlucky number is because uh, the Chinese character for number four symbolizes death. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, four is a number that, you know, I try to avoid. If I, if I am, you know, go to a, a uh, gas station and, and I'm, my car is, is moving towards the, the fourth, um, you know, uh, pump, pump. Um, I'm going to drive around and go to another number. Yeah. And it's worked out okay so far, I guess. Yeah. Um, those are kinds of uh, superstitions that I have uh, certain numbers. 13, the same thing. I, I try to avoid anything that's 13. All right. All right. That's a good one. Uh, do you have a book that you've read recently that you'd recommend to people? It's a book that I actually reread. Um, and, I, and I like doing, you know, there are certain books that I love reading over and over again at different points in my life. To Kill a Mockingbird um, is one of my favorites and uh, recently reread that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how sometimes you read a book for the second or third time, the stuff that you missed the first time. Mm-hmm. I think that's some of the uh, re- rewards of going back and rereading things that, that you know, that you enjoy. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I think the best piece of advice that I've been given and I try to pass on to, to younger people that I encounter. Um, and when I say younger people, I, I generally mean people that um, who are interested in the law, who want to be a lawyer, who are lawyers, but want to know how to sort of, um, you know, realize their, their goals um, in this profession. Um, and it's advice I think is not only just peculiar to lawyers, but to, to anybody, which is that, you know, you really should pick something as far as your vocation, um, something that you have, you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not passionate about it, chances are that, you know, given how long we live uh, and how long our careers will be in the working world, um, you're not going to, you're not going to really, um, generate a lot of enjoyment out of it. And that's something that is, that's important. You know, um, the way I look at it is that I'm very passionate about being a trial lawyer, uh, and being a lawyer that, you know, is in court, whether defending cases, prosecuting cases, or, or presiding over cases. Um, I, I, you know, there's never a day when I feel that that is something that, is a bane of my existence. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that work. I enjoy the skills that are re- that are required to to be successful in there, and it fits my personality. So, um, if you can find something that fits your personality and that you're passionate about, you will spend a lot of time perfecting your craft and putting a lot of time into developing your skills and your talents. Um, and then chances are, if you if you put in that kind of time to develop your skills and talents, you're going to be good at it. If you're going to be good at it, someone's going to actually pay you to do this type of work. That's that's um, the critical part, right? And if people pay you to do the work, then you can actually, you know, use this as a as a career where you can pay the bills and also do something that you enjoy. So many people I encounter in the legal profession don't enjoy what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't. They don't. Um, you know, uh, cultivate enjoyment from uh, their pursuits. Um, they get burnt out, uh, which leads to a lot of other issues involving mental health issues, depression, substance abuse, and things like that. Um, so I think if you're if you're someone in high school or in college and you're thinking about what you want to do when you grow up, um, you know, pick something that that 
that, that you can be you personally, not not what you know your parents want you to do or your friends are doing or other people. What you know, consider your individual characteristics and pick something that that fits you um, and fits well according to your values and your objectives in life uh, and things that you that would uh, provide you a sense of of enjoyment. Well, I, I appreciate how optimistic you are about uh, high schoolers and college kids listening to this podcast. Hopefully there are. And I think that's going to be uh, <laughs> or young lawyers. Young yeah, or lawyers. young lawyers. And I, and I think that's going to be terrific advice for them. John, we're going to leave it there. Where can people find you? Um, they can find me at, uh, by email at john at han, H-A-N dot law. Uh, my office is in Plymouth meeting uh, primarily. And like I said, I practice uh, criminal defense in uh, Montgomery County and Bucks County. Yeah, well, hey, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you coming on. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.